Professor Jeremiah McCoy, the monstrous ecologist. I have been asked by the esteemed Dr. Jeff Greiner here on the Tome Show to help enlighten his listeners to the various vagaries of villainous flora and fauna, vis-a-vis monsters. In these tales from the desk of the monstrous ecologist, I will be digging into the various inspirations for monsters in D&D, both real-world and uh, fictional, as well as various iterations to the various editions. I will hopefully entertain you with some details you might not know. Maybe it will also give inspiration in how to use said monsters in your campaign. Before we get too far, let's pause for a word from our sponsor. Look, mate. Three generations ago, my ancestors forged the Great Blade Skull Splitter. With it, they won the Goblin Wars, the Hobgoblin Wars, the Orc Wars, the Demon Wars, the Elf Wars, and the Gelatinous Cube Wars. And that one doesn't even make sense, because they don't have skulls. Now, all these years later... The legend of the Great Skull Splitter grows. Offering dice to help you create your own legends, Skull Splitter Dice makes the highest quality dice beautiful dice of both plastic and metal. Want to roll bones that look like bones? Or just something with enough heft to split the skulls of your enemies? Skull Splitter Dice has that and more. Check them out now at SkullSplitterDice.com slash Tomeshow and use the coupon code Tomeshow with all little letters, and get 15% off. Now get out there, split some skulls, and build some legends. Now, at last we come to the end of our grisly journey. In this episode of The Monstrous Ecologist, our third and final discussion of liches, we will bring our journey from 3rd edition to the modern incarnation of this terrible creature. We discussed in the beginning that the Lich, as we understand it, is a hybrid monster. It has its origins in Kolshai the Deathless and the works of pulp fiction writers. It may not have been called a Lich, but the monsters like them have existed for a very long time. D&D merely refined it to a single description and a name. In the previous editions, the presentation of the Lich was largely consistent. It was the ultimate magic-using enemy. A lifetime spent in search of Arcane power led to a nearly unkillable undead form that had all the might of a master wizard without any of the mortal frailty. The third edition largely kept them in that theme. Now, the nature of third edition D&D changed somewhat the nature of monsters. Third edition became more of a toolbox where you constructed monsters using various templates and variations on the PC uh, character creation rules. Dragon would have PC classes on top of the base dragon stats. A lich becomes a template 
for a base form of undead, which you add PC levels to, usually a wizard. The base description remains the same in this edition. Uh, a lich is still gaunt and skeletal, with an eerie red light shining from within eye sockets, still usually dressed in fine clothings. Why are they often in fine clothes, you might ask? Because, as we previously discussed, the cost to become a lich is not insubstantial. A wealthy person will often have expensive clothes, even if their goal is not tied to money. So it is with the lich. Anyways, the base template is added to another class or template, which changes the monster going forward. The hit dice of the new Lich are changed to D12s. The base armor class gains a plus 5 bonus, or the one bonus that the creature had before the template, whichever is better. They retain the touch attack option, which can be added to a natural weapon if the base template has one of those. Uh, they gain turn resistance, making them harder for a cleric to turn. They gain damage reduction of 15 slash bludgeoning and magic. That means they ignore the first 15 points of damage if the source is not bludgeoning, magic, or a natural weapon which counts as magic for these purposes. They gain the usual immunities to cold, electricity, polymorph effects, and anything mind-affecting. They are still required to have a phylactery, and the ones described in the Monster Manual is a, about as expensive as the one found in 2nd edition. Presenting it as a template, the Lich expands beyond the original variations quite a bit. A priest-based Lich or Arch-Lich, is now no longer presented as somehow separate. It is just a Lich, with the Cleric PC class options added instead of a Wizard. Now, this also leads to some stranger options. For instance, the Lich Fiends are an odd offshoot of the Lich. It appears in the Liber Mortis book, discussing various undead options and the 3.5 edition of D&D. It appears in an adventure as well, written by Chris Perkins in Dungeon 116. The premise of this foul creature is that they begin as fiends, such as a demon or a devil, and seek the state of being of being a lich. This is not given a lot of detail and reasons why they would want this state, it's all murky. It is made even murkier when you find out that they don't have a phylactery. They are bound to the power and whims of another fiend. Effectively, another fiend becomes their phylactery. Why do this? A fiend is largely immortal anyway, in the prime material plane at least. They are also vastly powerful on their own. In addition, becoming a lich involves, well, dying. If you kill a fiend on its home plane, it often means their final death. So the metaphysical side also becomes unclear. This particular iteration of lich is 
odd. But, moving on, let's discuss the Draco Lich. Now, this side version of the Lich actually was first introduced in first edition days of D&D. Ed Greenwood wrote it up in Dragon Magazine issue 110, an article called The Cult of the Dragon. This cult sprang from the wizard Samaster, who misinterpreted a prophecy to say, Not will be left save shattered thrones with no rulers, but dead dragons shall rule the world entire. This was, as I said, a misinterpretation of the original prophecy. Samaster's followers continued to misinterpret this passage to indicate that dragon liches would rule the world. Through various lost discoveries and some invention on their part, they came upon a method to turn the powerful dragons into even more powerful undead draco liches. The earliest dragons to undergo conversion were not exactly willing. That was surely a difficult job to convince a dragon to become an undead dragon for the first time does not sound like it would go easily. Anyways, the process involves drinking a noxious poison. Uh, like normal liches, and, and having a seat for the soul like a phylactery. The ingredients of the potion, or poison, are as follows. Two pinches of arsenic, one pinch of belladonna, one measure of fresh, less than 30 nights old, phase spider venom, at least one pint of it, the blood, at least one quart, of a virgin, of a demi-human individual, uh, of a long-lived race, or alternatively, a gallon of treant sap. This ingredient must have been drawn seven or fewer nights previously. The blood of a vampire, at least one quart, or a person infected with vampirism. This ingredient must have been drawn seven or less nights previously. One complete potion of evil dragon control, and one complete potion of invulnerability. That potion sounds unpleasant to say the least. These creatures are probably more insane than their living dragon brethren as well. They lack a, a real physical form, uh, which means they can't feel things, and that often drives them mad. The Draco Lich has been a potent force in every edition of the game, but the third edition version may have been the most complete presentation. The Draconomicon presented rather a lot of information, and there were more Dragon Magazine articles concerning this creature. The templated nature of monsters made it work pretty easily. Take a dragon template, add the lich template, and then several PC levels to make it more powerful. There are few monsters in all of D&D as powerful and as terrible as a Draco Lich. Moving on. A note on the elven ancestors presented in Eberron. They are an interesting side case, seemingly related to liches. On the surface, they appear lich-like. They are undead, long-lived, and often casters. 
The difference lies in their origin. They are powered by positive energy, where liches, and most other undead, are powered by negative energy. As a result, they do not belong directly in the discussion of liches. Despite the cosmetic similarities, their natures are very different. Arandis Vol, on the other hand, does belong in this discussion, but we will get to her near the end of the episode. Now, we will take a look into the 4th edition. In many ways, the 4th edition Lich is the most disappointing entry in our discussion. I do not often have poor things to say about any edition of Dungeons & Dragons. I rather liked 4th edition. It was a fun, high-energy game with lots of rather brilliant ideas and real innovations to the genre. 4th edition is fine, but their treatment of the Lich was borderline criminal. The version they provided was uninteresting, and not particularly threatening either. The previous versions of the creature were explicitly casters. They were intended to be creatures who planned and plotted. They set traps and were terrifying once you became aware of them. The fourth edition version lacks much of the versatility and terrifying intelligence. They did have magical abilities in the model of fourth edition, but did not feel like undead wizards specifically. They had necrotic auras that damaged people near them. They had regeneration and some directed blasts, but they lacked the versatility which made an undead wizard truly a problem. They still had their phylactery, which made them effectively immortal, but in combat they were not terribly difficult to deal with. There were no indications of abilities outside of combat either. The two versions presented in 4th edition Monster Manual were different levels, with one being human originally and the other being Eladrin. There was also a path to becoming a lich-like creature for PCs in this edition as an epic destiny. That said, we can largely move past 4th edition lich and leave it as a footnote only. Now, finally, we come to the 5th edition Lich. The Lich has been with us since the earliest editions of D&D, and the 5th edition version is certainly in keeping with those first few editions. It is a terrifying creature that is hard to kill, and the power to make a good arch-villain. They have broad versatility given their spellcasting, and can stand up alone to most opponents. Not that they will, because a lich is smart and minions are cheap. The stats are largely similar to the second edition version of the lich. Damage immunities are here. Poison, bludgeoning, piercing, slashing from non-magical attacks. They are also immune to a similar range of conditions. Charmed, exhaustion, frightened, poisoned, and paralysis are off the board. They also have resistance to cold, lightning, and necrotic damage. Some of the class abilities, like their fearful gaze, are moved to the status of legendary actions. They also get legendary resistances, making them much harder to kill. 
Much of their lore is the same as before. The phylactery is there, with a note about needing it to be refreshed with fresh souls. This was sort of covered in previous versions, but this is a little more clear. It gains lair actions, such as the ability to regain spells every other turn if they're in their lair, or to cause species to be attacked by necrotic tethers, or spirits of people slain by the lich attack the adventurers. Fighting a lich in its home can be very, very, very hard. The lich is a campaign villain. They use minions. They hatch centuries-long plans and seek more power. On the surface, the lich is a tough but not impossible fight on their own. But they are also the trigger for all the troubles the PCs face trying to reach them. The stats alone do not reflect all of this. I should make a note of variation. In previous editions, there were eventually a wide variety of different types of liches. Now, 5e has yet to present those variations, at least officially by wizards. There are a wide variety of variants presented by the DM's Guild, of course, and third-party publishers like Cobalt Press. A little looking will show you various versions that you can pull for your own uses. And now we discuss another notable example. Of all the famous liches I have talked about here, Arandis Vol stands out. We know a great deal about her in some respects, and very little in others. Is she evil? What are her goals? What was she like in life? Arandis Vol came out of a time of war. Ten thousand years ago, the conflict between elves and dragons raged. As the years wore on, some elves and dragons grew weary of the constant conflict. Minara de Vol, an elven necromancer, and a dragon called Emerald Claw became involved, and between them had a child named Arandis. She was half dragon and half elf, and possessed the dragon mark of death. We don't have many details about what she was like in life. Arandus was conceived in an effort to bring peace between dragons and elves. What does that mean to her as a character? What does that mean to her as a person? The facts of her existence were largely kept secret to protect her, but secrets often make it into the wild. She did manage to unite the two races in the end, but not the way it was intended. She united them in their desire to see her destroyed. She was seen by both peoples to be an abomination. As her house fell, her father disappeared. Maybe the Emerald Claw died defending her. Or maybe he just couldn't watch. As her house fell, her mother, a remarkable, accomplished necromancer, transformed Arandus into a lich. The language of the account makes it unclear if this was with Arandus's consent or not. Afterwards, she was sent away. Her mother fell along with the rest of House Vol. Did Arandus, the lich queen, become evil because of this? Or did it come 
in the long centuries and millennia since? We don't know. She did have allies, however. A network of agents she has fostered for 2,500 years. She has a religion, which actually doesn't worship her, but is heavily influenced by her. Most of the religion's believers do not even know she really still exists, but her control persists. From her hidden lair near the Lazar principalities, she orders the church to action. While we have no first-hand accounts of her orders, there is much we can glean from the blood of Voil. They believe divinity resides in one's blood. They are often evil and selfish. While they don't worship or revere the undead, they are proud to use them as servants. So her church is evil. The Emerald Claw, the military wing of her organization, named after her father, are often provocateurs and villains. So it would seem she is evil. But, like much in Eberron, it is less distinct. At no point does she show up as statted as a villain on camera, so to speak. We don't get to see a clear picture of her plans or personality. Much of who she is, how powerful she is, is left for individual groups to discover on their own. Her power and influence on the setting of Eberron is also more pervasive than any lich I have spoken of. Her church has a, a far reach. The Emerald Claw has its claws in many aspects of the world. She has had 2,500 years to spread her influence on the world. So how much individual power she may have can be irrelevant. Her power over the world is quite vast. So with that, we conclude our discussion of the Mighty Lich. When we discussed Aserak, we could describe the vast threat of a powerful lich or demi-lich, presented in a direct fashion. With Vecna, we described the vast reach of a lich's ambition, seeking for more power, that unto a god. With Arandus Vol, we see that much of what makes a lich truly terrible is the effect of having an intelligent, immortal being exercising more subtle forms of control over the long centuries. This aspect of a lich may be their greatest power. They become less simple villain, but a stone dropped in the pond of history, causing ripples over the ages. Well, we have explored liches for three episodes now. With that, we will wrap up that discussion and move on to other creatures from D&D. My knowledge on the subject may be scholarly, I do have some practical experience as well, and a vast library of sources. It's possible, however, I may still get things wrong. If you find an error, kudos to you. If you hear such an error, let me know. I will mention you in a future correction segment. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Psychologist. Please check out The Tome Show and shop at its various affiliate links. You can also help the show by visiting the Tome Show Patreon listed in the show notes. This has been Professor Jeremiah McCoy, and thank you for listening. <laughs>